Broadcasting live from the true proof that 2010's nostalgia is here and profitable. This is Pop Culture Reference, your one-stop reference for all things pop culture. I'm one of your hosts, Seamus Connolly. And I'm Garrett Flickerman. Ah, the damn host it. Of the 10th <laughs> annual Hunger Games. Oh, I was I was so desperately trying to come up with Flickerman as I was doing that intro. I keep for some reason. I mean, maybe it's because I only call those Flickerman actors by their real given names, but I, I I do love that so much. We could have done the whole episode in Tucci voice, but who could keep that up? Who could sustain that? <laughs> that kind of laugh for an yeah. hour straight. It's just, it wouldn't be, <laughs> we can't do that as we talk about The Hunger Games, colon, a song of, no, a bash, damn it, I already, a ballad of snakes and songbirds? A ballad of songbirds and snakes, there rather. There he is, he there got it. Is. I, I made it, and that was my Hunger Games, Garrett. Just 12 Seamuses in a room on a mic <laughs> trying, trying to, to say the, the actual title. <laughs> trying to come up with the title of the movie I saw 12 hours ago. <laughs> like, very, so recently. But first, we're going to get into just a just a little bit of news. Just a little baby, just a little taste just a tiny, of news. Just a smidge, a smidge. First up is the passing of Roger Castle, who, while definitely not a household name, was, and not a particularly prolific poster artist, has the distinction of creating what is, I think, maybe the best movie poster of all time, which is, of course, the poster for 1975's classic Jaws. A poster that perfectly sells exactly what the movie is with such simplicity and beauty that is the background of my laptop. It's incredible. It is maybe one of the best posters ever made, and I, I actually very much truly believe that. It's part of the decades-long iconography of that movie is just the poster by itself. Just the just the cover art of the VHS tape that I had for the first time when I ever saw Jaws for the first time. It is It has burned in my head, for sure. He also did the wonderful Gone with the Wind riff Empire Strikes Back poster, which is one of the best posters from oh, the yes. whole Star Wars saga, I think, and lovingly homaged, which is so funny because it's kind of like a hat on a hat. There is a great Guardians of the Galaxy 2 poster that is like a direct rip of that poster, which is kind of a direct rip of the Gone with the Wind poster, so... Right, 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 but I mean... That that goes to show just how how damn good and prolific his his stuff was. We are not going to be really talking more Roger Castell uh, in our pop culture reference, but we will be talking a little bit about prolific poster artists uh, from that era. And it, really, he only did two movie posters. But when the it's those two movie posters, you get a slot at the beginning of this podcast. Yes, abso- absolutely. But up next, we're going to have a warning. Warning. Oh. Wait, well, wait, is this, is this a warning? Is this maybe a, a warner win, perhaps, in some in some way? I don't know. I think it's tricky because they shouldn't be in this position. They really did put themselves right into this position, so it's, it's hard to, like, want to pat them on the back for something like this, but it does... Give me a, just a little spark of joy that we'll, you know, me and you, we're going we're gonna to sit down at some point and we're going to have a probably pretty good time watching Coyote versus Acme as, as Warner Brothers is sh- uh, shopping it out to other places right now. I mean, as long as I'm already subscribed to it, I think that's a, a day one we're going to pop that on. It's insane to me that Warner Brothers is comfortable 
Considering the fact that Bugs Bunny was literally on the Warner Brothers logo for like a decade in the 2000s. Oh, yeah. That they're comfortable letting another studio release a Looney Tunes property. Like, again, this is a way better alternative to the just putting it on a hard drive and never seeing it again. But... Yeah, it is, it is surprising. I don't know, because it's not going to be Di- Disney, I imagine, but, like, where else would it go? I know that Netflix is very interested, um, which is not surprising at all. Amazon oh, no, Prime, yeah, I've also yeah. heard. I guess that may... I, would, I could see that going to Netflix. They have a weird relationship with animation stuff, so maybe they're trying to get some... Get some good grace for that. I know they're trying to to kind of bounce back with their animation stuff, but I would like to see it soon, if if possible, if if we could possibly get there. But it it is going to be a little weird seeing that very specific Looney Tunes content anywhere else. I'd love if it could get a theatrical release, but I I don't know if that's the that course. that is very much asking for too much. I think that is just that, no. I in my mind, there's no chance. This is already kind of. A little bit of a gimme that we're even going to get to, like, have this movie exist in the public. But I I would have liked it to be in theaters, too. But that that is probably never going to happen. And our last bit of news here. We've been waiting for this for a long time, Seamus. And I'm so glad mm. that we could finally share the news that True Lies and The Abyss are, and also Aliens, but, like, that's been readily available <laughs> are officially coming to 4K Ultra HD when The Abyss and True Lies have not been available to own in any kind of high definition ever uh, next March. I believe that they'll all be on digital uh, in December. Mm -hmm, Yes, that is right. In March, March 12th of 2024, they will be hitting shelves and hitting my shelf specifically because... Oh, yeah, dude. I mean, they're they're those are bangers. I, it's it's a sh- it's like incredible that it has taken this long for them to be in this kind of format. But they're both incredible films. I just watched True Lies on a whim last week, and it is such a delight. It is one of the greatest, most ridiculous action movies of all time. I I love it. The Abyss is such a truly messed up kind of movie. Like, there's very messed up moments of that movie, and it already looks insane. The way that it already is. So 4K of The Abyss is going to probably scramble my brain. I think it's going to blow my mind for real. And you and I will be there in theaters one night only. yeah. December 6th when they're re-releasing it. They haven't said IMAX. I'm holding out for IMAX, but... Hopefully, man. That that would be the ultimate movie-going experience. The way it should always be seen. But speaking of IMAX history, Seamus... Why don't we go ahead and transition into our main segment for the day? Let's do it. <laughs> for today's main segment, we're going to be talking about The Hunger Games, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, which I I had to be the one to say that because I know Seamus can't get it out. So <laughs> I, I was like going along with it in my, like mouthing it along with you as you said it just now to make sure I've got it down. <laughs> Well, Seamus, you have been wavering quite a bit about your excitement for this Mm. movie. You have not known whether or not you were interested. I guess before I ask you what you think of this new Hunger Games movie, we haven't, unlike what we usually do for 
movies like this. We didn't go back and revisit any of the Hunger Games movies for the show. So tell me about your relationship with this franchise in general, and then maybe also tell me a little bit about what you thought of this one in relation. Yeah, absolutely. I... I'm sure I've brought it up on the show here before. Like, I had a very big aversion to the Hunger Games when they were coming out. The books were so insanely popular, and I liked Harry Potter. I read those books, so everyone was like, oh, then you'll love Percy Jackson. Oh, then you'll love Hunger Games. Nobody ever told me to read Divergent, so we're cool there. But, you know, that's that's similar era, I think. And so I was just like, no, I'm good. I'm fine. I'm, I'm past the young adult stuff. And then the movie started coming out, and then it drove me insane. It was like Hunger Games and Twilight at the same time, I think? Around around the same time, at least. Twilight, I feel like, was wrapping up when Hunger Games was starting, but yeah. So yeah, there was like it was like an overlap of like just bombarded with advertisements and weird love triangle whose side are you on style ad campaigns that were just driving me absolutely crazy so i didn't i i saw the first one when it was in theaters and it was bad so i was like super vindicated feeling i was a little kid like love that this movie sucks everybody can shut up about it now so it took until maybe a couple years ago even to finally actually watch them all and it's one out of four movies is good, I think, total. Some of them are a little more watchable in some parts. There's some interesting parts of the the last few movies that I are fun ideas in a, you know, wrapped in a bad movie. So it's not like I can say that I'm a fan, but Catching Fire, the second one, I actually think is a very solid movie. It, it impresses me every time I revisit it and, you know, Philip Seymour Hoffman, God, God bless him and anything. I, I love it so much. So I, like you're saying, I was very hot and cold with the idea of a prequel about Donald Sutherland's uh, President Snow character. But I gotta say, I think this is the second best in the franchise. And again, that's not, it's not up against a lot of heavy hitters, but I was kind of wavering all the way up until this movie started. And I was, I was actually really impressed by what we got all together. But what do you, what about you? I, I think you have a little bit more history with this franchise than I do. Uh, you, you don't have so much hatred in your heart for, for what all this stuff is. So what, what did you think of it all? It's certainly still a complicated relationship, I think, because I think the first book is brilliant. I read it in sixth grade, I think, right before it became the biggest thing in the world. Mm. And the second and third books... I am not a fan of. I didn't enjoy them very much. But ironically, I think that you were mentioning the first movie's bad, and I think the first movie is really bad. I remember seeing it at midnight, <laughs> opening oh, night. Oh, wow. You were really crushed then, weren't you? I mean, I wasn't like the biggest Hunger Games fan in the world, but I was excited. It was that era. I was that age. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, it was not good. And then I had, by the time Catch Fire came out, I reviewed it for the newspaper for my high school and was blown away. I think that that is the high point of the YA genre. Also, yeah, I don't really yes. count, like, I should clarify, the YA dystopia genre is probably what I should say, because the high point of the YA genre is Prisoner of Azkaban. I was going to say, I don't even know if I necessarily do, like, the first three or four Harry Potter movies. Like, they don't register to me as the YA young adult stuff. That's, like, maybe it's because they're not teens until the, the later half of that stuff, and they're, like, it's truly, like, kids doing wizard stuff. But, yeah, the whole 
YA apocalypse dystopia stuff is it's it's so not my thing. But Catching Fire, which we'll never have another excuse to do for the show, we blew it. But um, <laughs> it's incredible. I think Philip Seymour Hoffman's amazing. I think that the deployment of IMAX is fantastic. Oh, yeah. It's got great performances. It's got a, a really chilling tone that balances really well, like the actiony fun part of YA blockbusters, and is something that a lot of the YA blockbusters forgot to do, which is actually to have it be sad and have real yeah, oh, human yeah. emotion. So I think that's a great movie. Uh, and then the third and fourth movies kind of wane. The film adaptations of two and three are better than their books, for sure. But they have moments of brilliance throughout. I think all of the Hunger Games movies are like technically good, except for the first one. Mm. And I respect a lot of the restraints and formal classiness of even, like that last one's a little rough, but there are still moments where I'm like, oh, this is like a well-made movie and it's interested in being a well-made movie. I think a great example is that that last movie doesn't have the kind of curtain call closing credits that most movies around that time that were at the end of these big franchises did. It ends on a really somber melancholic note yeah yes it does that that is one of the things that i do think more highly of of those last two movies for sure is that they a a lot like the second one where they deploy a cliffhanger in a way that doesn't feel as cheap as a lot of that era of ya sequels did the same thing that you're saying with the end of the the part two of mog and j part two it it really it hits you in the gut and it makes you think about like well this world is still kind of horrible and it's not like well we did it the th- everything is saved the day is saved everything is great forever always from now on it's i i definitely appreciate that at least in the, in that last one two three and four were directed by francis lawrence and he is back for hunger games ballads of songbirds and snakes a similarly stacked cast of actors has returned to a similarly competent film that is more interested in being a good movie than it is in being a YA blockbuster, which I really admire. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, it has problems, which we will get into, but overall, I was very impressed and, of course, delighted by any excuse to get to watch Peter Dinklage, Jason Schwartzman, Viola Davis, even Rachel Zegler, who is becoming a, a favorite of mine. I love seeing her when she crops up and stuff, even though I, she's only been in three movies, <laughs> period. But she she's, like, kind of delightful. Every time I see her, she's kind of stealing the show, and I, I, I thought she did the exact same thing in this one. So, overall, I, I am happy with this movie. The second time a Hunger Games movie has played it up with expanding IMAX ratio, which we saw it in... Well, we saw it in LIMAX, technically. We didn't see it in full 1 to 1.9, but it was still fun to see, you know, going in and out of those sequences, and I think it is not a coincidence that the movies that have the greatest craft behind them, the movies that take into account tools like that are also the two best of the franchise hunger games catching fire and the ballad of songbirds and snakes 
Yeah, I 100% agreed. I I think there I was trying to think about why that might be and I think there there's a lot even though it is like a returning to the franchise that was such a phenomenon and it's a prequel about things that you know people might want answers about there I think there's just so much less pressure on a movie like this since it's just I mean I don't know anybody who's read that book besides maybe one or two people it's not like I every other person is telling me to read this book watch this movie it's just kind of it's not setting up for more movies as far as I know I don't know if there's any more books in the works or published that they could even pull from it's just kind of its own thing Uh, a very interesting three-part structure that they don't try to drag out any necessarily any longer than I feel like it needs to be they're kind of just like we're back to there's no setup, there's no expectation, it's just one movie that we're going to make a good movie. I think that it is very useful to think about what this movie did and compare it to Fantastic Beasts and where to find them. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, you've actually seen those, and I just I just have heard tale of them. So, you haven't even like, seen the first one? No, dude, I, okay. I couldn't bring myself to do it. I was just like, I don't, even, I don't know... What was that, 2017 or 2016 when that first one came out? Yeah, around then. Around I was just then. so done. With, I was like, I saw the last movie, and that's that's it. I don't need to. I don't need to care anymore. I, I, I never, I never felt the pull to care about any of that stuff. Plus, the cast didn't really, you know, interest me at all. Actually, I think Redmayne is pretty good in. Like, I don't. I'm not like a huge Eddie Redmayne fan. I think he's pretty good in that. Catherine Watterson also great. I don't need to defend that right now. Um, <laughs> my takeaway is that that movie is simultaneously doing so much to be like, you're back. It's Harry Potter. You remember Harry Potter? It's so fun. <laughs> but also not paying attention to any kind of craft or attempt to build on the things that make the world of Harry Potter feel special and exciting. There's no real attempt to deepen the thematics that are present in the Harry Potter movies by showing the world that birthed what we see in in Harry Potter, the events of of that of those films. And The Hunger Games, Battle of Songbirds and Snakes, is so good about being measured and intentional about its use of call not call backs but call forwards and Mm. really trying to amplify the messaging and even i think adapt the messaging of the hunger games to make it more relevant to things that have happened the last 10 years which we will get into a little bit more in spoilers and they were like what if we made and again i haven't read the book so we can't discuss that aspect of it right right but it really feels like what if we made a hunger games movie that's for right now and even though it feels more tonally and formally akin to movies that we were making eight, nine years ago, that is the feeling that I get watching this film, is that they were like, this is something that has very explicit stuff to say about the current cultural moment, and that resetting the clock on the Hunger Games franchise, going back in time, is a great way to tell that story, and Fantastic Beast feels like, how can we crank a few more billion out of the <laughs> Harry Potter money machine without actually having to think about it? 
and it's crazy to me the difference between the qualities of those two products when you would expect warner brothers who has endless resources especially like back before it was warner brothers discovery to be able to pull off uh a well-executed prequel i mean this is one of the hunger games the best prequels i've ever seen yeah, pre- prequels often kind of fall into that trap of, like, it needs to be so... Con- I mean, especially now with how much dumb MCU-style callback garbage that we are, are fed in, in cinema. It's refreshing to not feel hit over the head every... Di- you know, every piece of dialogue they could have said in this Hunger Games movie could have been exactly that, and... You know, most viewing audiences probably that's exactly what they are there to see in a in a Hunger Games prequel. But it it felt just subtle enough, and it was in a perfect middle ground there where I still appreciated how much they were saying like, "Well, we are we are writing this movie to be a competent prequel and not just a reference machine." I I thought that was great, and that's why, as stupid as it sounds, I'm ready for. <laughs> we were saying last night, I'm ready for the the snow ascendancy storyline do it every every quarter quell until it reaches the back to the mainline franchise of him just growing a larger white beard every movie and then and then it'll be the perfect circle well similar to what you just said uh despite my whole thing that i just wrapped up the pacing of this is strange i think it's one of the biggest weaknesses of the film and I hate to say it, I, I'm not definitively saying that I think this, but it's making me wonder if maybe this movie could have been two parts. Oh, that is interesting. Because, th- I mean, I mentioned that three-part structure earlier, and once we did get to part three, I suddenly realized, like, oh, right, there is 100% supposed to be a part three of this movie, and then it, it kind of really changes the tempo of everything in the storyline at that point until the end, so... I can see where I hell it could have been three movies if they really really wanted it to be and yeah. they could have really dragged it out but I think not making it so like even for a Hunger Games movie to have not a ton of it even focus too much on the actual Hunger Games I, I guess I should maybe wait more I was for spoilers say, on why that why don't we put a pin yeah. in this wrap up our thoughts and then once we open up the spoiler conversation, we can get right back into like, yes. where maybe we would put a part two divider. <laughs> yes, okay. Or part three, um, in your case. Right, right. Well, I mean, I'm saying maybe... <laughs> well, we'll get into it. We'll get into it. I Overall, incredibly enjoyable. I, I In my flip-floppiness, in my attitude about this movie, I walked out of that theater incredibly satisfied with what we got. I was not disappointed in a single performance including the guy who plays Snow, whose name I still didn't learn, even after yeah, that whole Blythe. thing. Blythe? Blythe. Tom Blythe. Yeah, look Tom at me. Tom Blythe. There, good man. You he, paid attention. He was in the Robin Hood uh, Ridley Scott movie. <laughs> oh, no. Okay, well, that's something I'll never see, probably. Yeah, you shouldn't. It's bad. And I, <laughs> that's what I hear. He must have also been, like, a baby in it. Because... I was going to say, he's a young young man. But either way, I think I think everybody did wonderfully and a pleasant surprise of a theater-going experience for me. I totally agree. If you have even a vague, far-off fondness for anything related to the Hunger Games franchise, this is worth seeing. Because 
It's isolated enough that it's just kind of a strong little story. However much you catch of what's coming with the rest of the story is is there for you to find, but it's a strong character piece all on its own. It kind of feels like a biopic for a guy that doesn't exist. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that is really what it feels like, and that's why my mind wanders to like him even more of that kind of biopic story to where we know that he ends up but i i think overall very very well executed with what the the era of his life that we are getting and i think uh the imax sequences are good enough to to justify going to see oh, yeah. in that oh format. yeah completely agreed so official spoiler wall for the Hunger Games, The Ballad of Songbirds of Six, and also all the other Hunger Games movies. Um, yes, oh yes, of course. And so, I think, Seamus, that maybe if the movie ended with them locking eyes in the District 12 speakeasy. Oh, interesting. And it's like, okay, so, you know, the big the games happen... She wins, there's the big climax, and then there's the, kind of like Catching Fire, there's the chaos of what happens in the fallout of the games. Is she dead? He's getting sent off to be a peacekeeper, and then, oh, look, we're both alive, we're both in the same place, what's gonna happen now? I do, I actually like that a lot. There's, it's, it's, uh, we get to, because that's in part three already, when when that happens, yeah. I guess it's like right at the the front end of part three, but I think that would have given a, a little more room to breathe. I I feel like that would have given the idea of him flipping his switch to evil bad boy would make more sense. I feel like it just happened a little swiftly once we get past or more into part three. I wanted him to. I don't know, chip away at himself a little more consistently throughout everything. Cause it, I kind of feel like it, it all happens at once, but if they stretched out his time in district 12, his time as an anonymous slim shady haired peacekeeper out there, <laughs> I think it would, I think it would have helped a lot actually. I, I agree. But also again, that is kind of the part of this movie that is weak is the pacing of the games end and it's like okay it feels like we're at the end of this movie mm. and because it's still like the you know the games start pretty early in the movie but this is this movie's almost three hours this movie is over two and a half hours yeah. long and it doesn't feel that long to be despite how the pacing is i don't think it feels as long as it's runtime but you're like okay we're time time you know we're going back to the districts time to kind of wrap it up and then we spend we either needed more time or less time in District 12. <laughs> yeah, I feel like yeah. we spend a very strange amount of time in District 12. And then finally we come back and you're like, oh yeah, Viola Davis is in this movie. Oh yeah, Peter <laughs> Dinklage is in this movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're like, oh yeah, there's like a whole other world that we left for a really long time uh, to come out here to District 12. Which again, is a very important part for his role, and I agree with you that it could have been expanded even further. But overall, I mean, I think that his descent into self-preservation evil is mostly viable. I mean, he's got his little Anakin Skywalker. Uh, they should be made to listen <laughs> yeah. 
it's an interesting slip from I'm an underdog who's out for myself to I've become the fascism that perpetuates the system that has put me in that position to begin with to alienating himself so much that nobody that he cares about can trust him. Obviously, this is a movie about how class disparity and and social inequity create radicalization from... He's very specifically a white man in this, but also just like, you know, people who feel that they should be ruling class, how he becomes radicalized and more violent and has this kind of slip into fascism. Just, there are some thoughts about maybe the timing of this movie coming out and the story that are being <laughs> yeah, told. Yeah. yeah, definitely. There's, a, there's the idea of like, it starts with him and his cousin like taking off bathroom tile accents to replace buttons and she's like scamming her way into getting to wash a shirt with bleach and then it turns and then he he has that other similarly anakin skywalker moment of like i'm gonna sacrifice the people that i know trust me to get that ascendance to where i i believe that i belong you know i i watched a man cannibalized another man when I was a kid, and I've, I've seen the horrible, you know, the what what the world has become and what it can slip farther into. But I'm gonna I'm gonna believe my legacy and my my bloodline. My name puts me in a place that I can, you know, I'm gonna feel kind of okay having Chino hung at the hanging tree in <laughs> District Twelve, and and. Like, that sacrifice is worth it to him to to be like, this is how I buy my life and my legacy back into the graces of the people who actually run the capital. And that element of the commentary, I think, also resolves something that the books have a real problem with and, and the older movies do a better job at reconciling, which is The Hunger Games is across kind of three planes of social commentary. The first book, I feel, which is the most successful of them, is about the way we pit kids against each other and the education system in America and how that is fed by social inequity, right? Mm. And this movie takes that and makes it text. It makes it explicit. It is, here are kids that are trying to all get into college and they can't afford to go to college. So Mm. we're all fighting each other for it. And we're pushing down those less fortunate to us and whoever best can exploit those less fortunate than them get to go to college. Like that is explicitly the the plot plot. of this movie. And then the other two things that are going on in the original Hunger Games books are it is an allegory for um, American consumerism and the role of the media in politics and also kind of vaguely an allegory for like, well, what was going on at the time that the books were being written is like the Arab Spring in the Middle East, but armed revolution against a an authoritarian state, which obviously has metaphorical relevance to the United States, but is less explicitly one-to-one 
And the reason that the second and third books, I think, are worse is because Collins had this great idea for a story and wasn't able to execute it as well as she could the educational aspect in the first book. Mm -hmm. And so the movies, I think the reason that they are able to improve on the second and third books that they're adapting are because you have a team of people who are better equipped to tell that story. And here you come in and you're sharpening those theses even further while also adding in the layers of the fascist slippage that we were talking about earlier with Snow's character. And I really enjoyed how explicitly it was willing to grapple with those topics. The themes of retribution and justification for the actions that are so clearly morally bankrupt and the ideas that so many of the the slippery slope ideas that are implemented in this world are were like peter dinklage has a moment of very real honesty towards the end where he's like it, it's a it was a theory on paper i wrote it while i was drunk it's an experiment to show like how cruelty can like sure it can be effective but it will destroy us and then somebody with enough ambition for power thirst for power lust for revenge whatever you want to call it they are taking those theories of of hatred and violence and putting them into action for all of the world and showing that of course it's effective this this level of manipulation and violence and social programming that you can put into place it's like it is as effective as it can be in theory is an experiment, but you are just, you're burning the world around you as you're sitting on top of a throne of fire already. It's not, it's not worth anything, but to, to enough people it is to crumble the world. Just like, you know, like you're saying, the social commentary, sign of the times written about just uh, publicly collapsing systems that are, are failing to be reformed by those who are screaming for some kind of actual equity and justice not to mention that the central figure of this story is a man who on his path to becoming president is willing to take a cruelty and form of violence that the populace has a distaste for and turn it into a media circus and exploit the spectacle of cruelty so that it becomes entertainment so that he can garner better favor with not only mm. those in power but with the people who he's trying to rule despite the fact that he knows it's wrong you know there's also all of that going yes going that, on. It, it's not it's not very light-handed on any of these these ideas or themes, but it works. I, I, I like it. And maybe it's because we get to spend more time in the capital and with this different class of people that we don't necessarily get too much of a magnification on in the original four movies. But I just, I think it works really well with that. You know, the all around him when he's in the capital, you see like cranes building up these massive brutalist structures that are like towering over everybody in the in the original movies that are just like it seems like well that's been there forever those are the 
you are in the valley of the mountains that are ancient and strong and uncollapsible. But then to see, you know, everything building up around him 10 years removed from that intro flashback where him and his cousin are watching a man cannibalize a corpse. It's I think those themes are are kind of the best in here. And they, they would have been a little more lost in the sauce, as it were, in the, in the other ones. You brought up Peter Dinklage's character, and while ultimately in his final scene everything is kind of resolved, I think we could have used more time with him, not only because Dinklage is obviously a spectacular actor, and I want to see him in more... Like, what's he, mm-hmm. he's not been doing stuff lately, and I'm sure he's off with his 15 Emmys on a beach somewhere <laughs> yeah, with all his yeah. Game of Thrones money and living a very happy life for it, but this idea of he's this man that's so ridden with guilt for creating a system that he hates but for a long time he has a very inconsistent relationship with with snow and it's really unclear what his thoughts are on this kid and yeah for sure i think part of that i mean i'm not trying to discredit the movie for that because i think part of it is he's trying to make up his mind who is like he knew his father and he knew the cruelty of his father and he's trying to suss out who this kid is. Is this kid his father? And by the end he gets his answer. So that's why, you know, that hatred kind of curdles. Yeah. It's a very Snape-esque feeling. I feel like where they were just like, are we supposed to feel like this character is is inconsistent and, and a little weird of an attitude towards an actual child pretty much, but it, it, it gets there eventually. They, they wrap it all back around. He, there's the moment where he finds out that, uh, Peter Dinklage sent Lucy, Ellie Gray. May, Lucy Gray. Yes, of course. Ellen May. Uh, <laughs> I've got justified on the mind, of course, but yeah, how he like kind of stopped her from getting punishment, sent her back home to, you know, District 12 and that, and that's a moment of, like, what is his deal? Like, why why is any of this happening? But I I thought they did it well enough by the end that I, I didn't mind that it, it felt very strange. When you, when you find out his true motivations are to collapse the Hunger Games and kind of, you know, be the fly in the ointment on the inside of the Capitol. I think he could have used more screen time to flesh out that character because I feel like he's probably the most one-dimensional major character in this. Even though I do enjoy him, and we I spent a lot of the runtime trying to kind of parse what his deal was. Uh, he does also, they're like, oh, we'll get Peter Dinklage because, you know, he's basically Tyrion and people get it. <laughs> right, yeah. But then, I mean, I, I very much enjoyed... Viola Davis's performance. She's crazy and evil, but she's she's scary in this. Oh, like, for sure, she is. She is a frightening psycho, which is you know perfect for that type of role in this. But also, I mean, I feel like she is even more one dimensional than Peter Dinklage, and she gets like triple the screen time as him. And well, again, I very much enjoyed her and and her whole thing. Again, it would have been nice to get a little more on her as a crazy psycho evil game taskmaster beyond just like, I I love these games, I'm all about the games. Here's the thing, I think that you're not giving her final scene enough credit. Because in a kind of twisted reflection of Philip Seymour Hoffman's character from the later films, or the earlier whatever... 
you know, from the yes. Philip Seymour Hoffman ones. He is a guy, he's the head game maker, and in reality, he is playing, like, the last scene of this movie says, the whole world is an arena. Everybody thinks, including President Snow, that he's just playing the arena games, when in reality, he's puppet mastering the entire socio-political landscape, in his case, to form a rebellion. Mm -hmm. And now you look at Viola Davis, and she is on the surface just like a crazy, sadistic, I, I'm evil and I just want to make the games as awful as possible. And the slow revelation that she has been playing Snow the whole time, that she has been playing all of these characters the whole time, she isn't even mad that he cheated. He does the whole thing where he sneaks the handkerchief into her her snake pile. By the way, I'm yeah, we have to talk about your affinity for the pile <laughs> of snakes at some point. We oh, we will. I promise you that. But the second he does that in my head, I'm like, "Oh, she's going to be so mad that he did that." But then by the time you get to the last scene of the movie and she's been pulling the strings for him seemingly this whole time, are you like, "Oh, was she showing him that?" Was she telling him to do that when she had his lab partner get bit <laughs> yeah. by the snake? You know, I I guess I I guess I'm thinking about more of her earlier in in the movie stuff. I I guess I do need to give credit where credit is due. It is all about the manipulation of who's in power and who is trying to seize power and how does that dynamic change and and make these toxic horrible relationships mutually beneficial in some kind of way. I, I, I do like that. I, I do see that now. Pile of Snakes, though. Pile of Snakes, I mean, right up there with uh, Jason Schwartzman is my favorite character in this, in this movie. <laughs> I was assuming Pile of Snakes was going to be in the arena way earlier. I didn't know it was going to be like the Fortnite storm that's clearing out the place at the end there when it's like... The president's son is dead. We're killing everyone, y'all. And then they drop, they drop the big tank of snakes. But I thought it was it was really crazy how they just wipe out pretty much the last quarter of the people in that in that arena with the snakes. It's a very effective scene, and I know that you were kind of for like a month before this movie came out, you were as a meme kind of excited about the big pile of snakes. Um, not to say that you weren't genuinely also excited, but. You know. But then it then it actually came through as like an interesting part of this movie that I actually very much liked. Rachel Zegler given a great performance as snakes slowly curl around her arms and midsection and mm, yeah. singing powerfully and defiantly to the Capitol cameras. I also loved the guy who respected all of the dead also kind of echoing things that happen later in the world mm. of the hunger games um and putting the panam flag over them totally just sitting there silently accepting his fate as he is yeah consumed by them and the little girl with down syndrome i was like oh i feel so bad for this this little girl tribute but then she goes out in an even worse way than i ever thought that she would that's a real bummer it's horrific yeah i mean this movie is pretty brutal violence wise i don't know if it is 
the most brutal. I think some of the stuff in Catching Fire is pretty rough, but they definitely are not afraid. There's in Catching Fire, there's a lot of like cutting away at the last second before stuff happens. Mm, yeah, and in this, I feel like they're a little bit more willing to show stuff, but also in some ways that could be less jarring because then you your imagination isn't putting all of the blood and guts where maybe blood and guts should go. Well, I mean, they have those moments of, like, bro, bro is crucified and get his gets his throat slit, and then also his body hits the dirt from, like, 20 feet in the air. So he, he gets it rough. Yeah. But then there's the part where, like, Snow has to club one of the, the, the one-armed uh, tribute to death while he's sneaking in there. And I think that's that holds just on his face when he's doing that. So they, they kind of get a little bit of both in there when when it matters the most, I think. Schwarzman's really funny. You mentioned Schwarzman being good <laughs> he's, in this. He's very funny. His, like, nerves a little bit of, like, he's, the 10th the annual is, like, the first time they have a host, apparently. Mm-hmm. He's like, this is the first time we're doing this. Uh, he's got a great phone call with a restaurant where he's like, I expected this to be wrapped up in, like, an hour. I, I'm hosting the 10th annual Hunger Games right now. I'm sorry. We're going to be a little late. The very funny stuff. Uh, his, his, the drones, <laughs> the janky drones that are, like, I was hoping they would, they do, they send in water two or three times, and then that's mm-hmm. it, right? Like, I was expecting them, I wanted to see some other drone action. Well, the big payoff is using the drones as weapons against yeah, the oh, other tributes, I and did him like that. saying the biggest laugh in the whole movie, these <laughs> drones are bad. Ah, uh, yeah, because they are, they really are. Uh, and then that also leads to uh, poisoning the poor tuberculosis girl with the water. But yeah, he he was he's very funny. I I guess I like to see the pre Tucci era of fashion and attitude in the. I, I guess I don't know why I'm specifically attributing that character to being like he really sets the trends in the capital in the in the main in the original movies, but. To see, you know, everyone isn't so much of a Tim Burton-looking psychopath in their big, colorful dresses and pale makeup, but I I was hoping for a little bit more laughing, Tucci-style laughing from, from Schwartzman, but it's good to know that there's, like, steps in between. Yeah, he's got the, well, they explicitly, he's a weatherman, and I really yeah. like that element of, <laughs> yeah. he feels like a car salesman or something. He's, like, sleazy in a more subdued way that is eventually going to let his grandson, Stanley Tucci, get the full <laughs> veneer yeah, yeah. purple wig going on. Very much like that. His, his like, make sure your buddy has a seat close to the door kind of scumbagginess that he brings to the table here. Uh, but again, I, I would like to have seen more of him just like, I, I just wanted more of all of the characters that I found more interesting in general than the guy who played snow, even whose name of Tom something. I remember Blythe. that much. Blythe, Tom Blythe. Again, still like a solid performance and all that, but more, more Schwartzman and even more like of the other handlers. I feel like we could have used a little sprinkle of. I wanted one more Schwartzman scene at the end when he comes back to the Capitol, whether that is, like, even just a glimpse of him on the TV talking about something. Yeah, I feel like we yeah. just needed a little payoff with Schwartzman. Would have been nice, but I guess, you know, the Tooch doesn't get that treatment in the other <laughs> That's movies, true, so. that's true. 
That that is true. They've gotta they've gotta not play favorites here. Um, I also just feel like we really need to mention uh, one once again how great Rachel Zegler is in this movie doing her own singing. Oh, She's so good! A powerhouse. I think that like if West Side Story wasn't already a star making performance, which it should have been, but nobody saw that movie. Um, this is a star making performance for her. She is spectacular. It's just again, it's insane how she came out of nowhere, but also. Also from West Side Story, her real-life boyfriend, uh, Josh Andres Rivera, who I think is pretty good in West Side Story, is amazing in this. He's really, oh, yeah. really good in this. He, he's got a couple really intense moments of, like, he gets a really good crying scene after there's, like, the they murder the mayor's daughter, and there's a, he, he has a really good screaming scene when he like throws the chair when the games first start calls everybody's animals he's i think he's fantastic in this and it it makes it all the more tragic that he gets really tortured and hung publicly in there i mean i knew he was i knew he was too good for that world he was like the one guy advocating to dismantle the games and, and all that so he was dead from the start but man was he great when he was alive I love his moment in the cafeteria when they were talking about going to feed the tributes. I thought that was an excellent, like, yeah, oh, even hell the yeah. dude moments, I think he, he really show, shined in. So, yeah, overall, Hunger Games, good movie. I liked it. Uh, I would see another one of these, but, but the beauty, the, the monkey's paw of that, the beauty <laughs> of this one is that there doesn't need to be another one of these that's... yes exactly as much as i like i can see it in my mind right now of like the evolution trilogy of him and the hunger games getting crazier with each movie i think standalone it's it's very very solid i don't need it to crumble under its own logic and weight and have more movies about it it is that's all we really need just a second good one and and that's what we have now I'm happy that this is deservedly being seen. There, there's been a couple this year that have been very underseen that that we really liked, but this one, it's just it's just popular enough. It's in that pocket, like we mentioned up top of that 2010s nostalgia, where it's actually going to get people to come and see a pretty good movie instead of just the next one, the thing that people are committed to. Also, we both did our homework and forgot to mention it. Olivia Rodrigo song, pretty good. Um, oh yeah, solid. Yeah. Good, good music video too. She's in a cabin in the woods, a la the cabin in the woods that they have in that movie. So it's 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 not bad. Yeah. But why don't we go ahead and move it on over to our pop culture reference? Let's do it. For today's pop culture reference, we're going to be talking about Drew Struzan. In today's news, we noted the passing of Roger Castell, artist behind one of the most iconic posters in film history, Jaws. While he also created the Gone with the Wind-esque poster for The Empire Strikes Back, his iconic work for these posters is often erroneously credited to prolific poster artist Drew Struzan. In the 1970s, Struzan started out creating album covers for the likes of The Beach Boys, Earth, Wind & Fire, and Liberace. He received much acclaim for the cover he illustrated for Alice Cooper's debut album, Welcome to My Nightmare. In high demand, Struzan formed a company, Pencil Pushers, along with his friend, Bill Pate, who had ties to the movie industry. Pencil Pushers started out doing one-sheet posters for science fiction B-movies in Struzan's now-signature airbrush style. In 1977, 
Fellow airbrush artist Charles White III was working on a poster for the 78 re-release of Star Wars. White asks Struzan to help with the portraiture of the human characters on what is now commonly referred to as the circus poster, which looked like a vintage poster for a swashbuckling adventure film posted on a larger wall. This poster catapulted Struzan into even higher demand, and he illustrated iconic posters for some of the most popular films of the next decade, including The Muppet Movie, The Thing, Back to the Future, E.T. the Extraterrestrial, and both Indiana Jones Adventures, Temple of Doom, and Last Crusade. Throughout the 1990s and 2000s, Struzan found other outlets for his prolific art style, including comic book illustrations, commemorative stamp collections, and board game box art, while still creating posters for films like Harry Potter and Star Wars Episode One. After the extensive art he created for the marketing campaign of Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull in 2008, Struzan announced his retirement. He has, however, come out of retirement for a few select projects. In 2015, he illustrated posters for both Bat-Kid Begins and Star Wars The Force Awakens. Then in 2019, he released a poster set for the How to Train Your Dragon trilogy, in the same vein as his poster for How to Train Your Dragon 2 in 2013. More recently, Struzan declined to come out of retirement to do a poster for 2023's Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. The 2013 documentary Drew, The Man Behind the Posters, examines Struzan's ability to elevate a film by still image alone, with film icons like Steven Spielberg, George Lucas, Michael J. Fox, and Harrison Ford highlighting his personal style that influences Hollywood art to this day. I think it's also worth noting we talked about how Castell's Empire Strikes Back poster is very reminiscent of Gone with the Wind. Struzan's Muppet movie poster is very reminiscent of Gone with the Wind. It's very, they're all, it's very drawing from the same stuff, apparently. But, I mean, this art style is like i i get i didn't really know the name as a fake fan for sure but then i i looked through the portfolio and it's like every movie poster i've ever been absolutely in love with has been under this man's name pretty much it's it's really impressive i know we were talking before the show about his art for the young indiana jones series which is excellent and definitely singed into my brain from being a young kid Oh yeah, absolutely. That's something I had loved even before I even had any awareness of how important that is. But I, I can I can see the box art for Indiana young Indiana Jones and the Legend of the Peacock's Eye. That's just like that's locked down in my brain forever. I mean, it's pretty hard to you think about things that are so iconic like Back to the Future, you know, Temple of Doom, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. And then you get into stuff that is less iconic, but still, like, to us is iconic. Like, Big Trouble in Little China, what a poster. Oh, what a great so poster. so good. I've, I've got that poster poster, actually. Yeah, I've got the actual poster of that. It is, it is one of my favorites. So, he, I mean, super prolific poster artist that... It seemed like a great opportunity while celebrating Castell to also touch on Struzan and really dive into a artist who is still with us that has made some outstanding contributions to Hollywood art. Oh yeah, absolutely. That that influence is going to never die out. I, I believe that 100%. But why don't we move it on over and save the wreck suffering. 
Now it's time to save the rec center, where we give you our weekly recommendations. Garrett, lay it on me. Well, Seamus, I did go to see last week the new Alexander Payne film starring Paul Giamatti, The Holdovers, and it is absolutely lovely. I adored it. I'm very resistant to say cozy, especially because I think pain explicitly butts up against that word. But it's a very warm, interesting portrait of a 1970s boarding school that is still holding on to some of its students for the holiday season. And Paul Giamatti is their curmudgeon history teacher who is forced to babysit them. Not only does it have a very charming film overlay that they have that they have done to it that because they shot it digitally and then i believe transferred it to film and then back to digital to give it that 70s warmth uh don't watch the trailer it gives way too much of the movie away but giamatti he's great one of the year's best performances honestly and I just, you should go see it. You should go see it wherever it's playing. I know if you're in Chicagoland, which a decent chunk of our listeners are, the Music Box Theater is playing it in 35mm, so that's worth checking out. Yeah, I I mean, I have seen the trailers. Against my will, I've seen the trailer for it, and I, I thought it looked really charming and really fantastic. It kind of gave that vibe already that you're describing of just, like, it's about the saddest Like, the holiday season is a sad time, as horrible as that sounds. There's a lot of really harsh emotions that go along with a a season like this. So, to have that kind of be a dark, darker take on a coming-of-age style comedy, I mean, it's hard not to laugh at Paul Giamatti's eyes bugging out and stuff from, like, the trailer moments that really did get me to feel very interested in this, but... That seems like it would be a really, really good time to go see. I mean, I would love to see it in film. It feels like, at least from the trailers, it looks like it would be a perfect like, quality to see on film. Like you are saying, that warmth that they kind of paid special attention to in the way they edited and presented it. So, I, this is high up on my list for sure, and I, I'm definitely going to check this one out soon. But what do you have for us this week, Seamus? I decided to go back down a little history road of my of my own here, Hollywood style, and I, for the first time ever, watched Terrence Young's 1962 Doctor No for the very, very Yo. first time. Very fun time. It is so bizarre to see where it all started. The very first Bond film, uh, Sean Connery, of course. It just, I really only know, like... Pierce Brosnan forward. I mean, I've dabbled in some of the Sean Connery ones that are a little later in his tenure as Bond, but this was such a fun, weird movie. I didn't realize the first Bond movie would take place exclusively in places that I've been in Jamaica for some reason. It's just like a strange view of 60s Jamaica where... James Bond is more of a detective than a spy, really, in this one. And it was just a very fun, super weird time to see where all the little stuff kind of comes into play that would then become the most iconic parts of this movie franchise. 
such a subtle, you know, he doesn't say shaken, not stirred, but they do give him a, a martini with a, a vodka martini with a lemon peel, just like you like it, not shaken, or uh, <laughs> whatever, whatever the weird explanation they give to him. And, uh, you know, st- he's playing poker, Felix Leiter is there, and it's it's such a, a fun place to see where all the origins of the little things come into play, and I couldn't recommend it more to people that have that more modern view of Bond through, like, Daniel Craig and stuff. It's It's such a weird, campy little adventure that is more than vaguely problematic about both Jamaica and China. So it is it's a yeah. it's a real relic, but it is it is a very fun time. Is that the one with the weird like swamp tank? Swamp tank? Is it like a tank or it's like a is it he's like there's like a big <laughs> tank vehicle thing that's firing on them. Oh yes, yes, yes. it's like there's a whole bit where they're like, there's a dragon on this island, James Bond, and it's just, it's a tank where they painted eyes onto right. it, and it has a right. flamethrower. It's very goofy. They kill off characters like no one's <laughs> business. They'll get you interested in a side character that doesn't matter, but you're like, you know what, I like this guy, and then they'll just blast him. It's very funny. I remember most of that movie being set in that one, like, nightclub restaurant in Jamaica, and then there's, like, <laughs> they go somewhere, and there's a burst of violence where Bond's friend dies, and he goes back to that nightclub restaurant. Well, the fr- I think the friend, like, owns, the- they, like, know the guy who owns it, and there's and there's a whole thing about that. And Like I said, he's like a, de- he's like a detective. He's not really a spy, but... It, he's also kind of a uh, whatever. It's weird. Espionage, you know. It's it, but yeah, it's espionage. But also he he gets to bone down on like four occasions in this uh, hour and twenty minute movie. So it's a true James Bond. It's a bizarre film. It is a really bizarre <laughs> film. Is, but very much worth it for the the cinema history and the Bond history alone. But I think that wraps us up for this week's episode of the Hunger Games. Uh, if you can. Follow us on social media. That would be wonderful. This is a weird way to wrap up. Uh, you can follow <laughs> us on Twitter, TikTok, Instagram, at PCR underscore podcast. Like us on Facebook. Email us at popculturereferencepod at gmail.com. Subscribe on YouTube. Anything you could do to engage with us on any platform really does help us out. Next week is going to be our next insane leg of this trend that will one day fully scramble our brains the godzillathon in in honor of the newest releases in the godzilla franchise i am very excited for that to come to fruition and also i want to note that coincidentally next episode will be episode 150 Seamus. well fancy that that is that is an anniversary that i it's a weird one to think about. It, it it would be fitting to do something big, I think, in in that very clean, rounded off number. But my God, we we've made it farther than anyone thought we could. Everybody doubted us, but here we are. Uh, Vin Diesel said, "You guys can do it," and that's what's kept us going this whole time. Uh, I'm I'm spiritually looking at the Vin poster in your apartment right now. I'm I'm looking in the direction of it and <laughs> bowing down. <laughs> I'm excited to come back for whatever insanity awaits us next week. Adios, amigos. Adios.